The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with a Slate Spoiler special podcast on Hot Tub Time Machine, the new um, movie about a <laughs> time travel in a hot tub. <laughs> I'm having trouble summarizing it because the title does it so perfectly already. Here with me in the studio in New York is John Swansburg, Slate's culture editor. Hi, John. Uh, very happy to be here. And joining us remotely from DC's studio is Dan Coyce. Hi, Dan. Hey, Dana. Hey, John. Hey. Dan, you want to lay out your bio since you have even new credits since the last time I, I listed it? Uh, yes, the life of a freelance critic. Um, I reviewed this movie for The Village Voice, uh, who I'm starting to review for. I also write for The Washington Post and for Slate sometimes. And are the author of a new book on? Oh, yes. And I'm the author of a new book on Israel Kamakavivo Ole, that fat Hawaiian guy who sang that version of Over the Rainbow that you always hear at rehearsal dinners. Wonderful. Okay, hey, thank you, Dan. So that makes you all the more qualified to join us. Um, so, so oh, Dan, yeah. I think that there's a differential here that we should start off by exploring, which is that John and I saw Hot Tub Time Machine together last night, and we really didn't like it, despite, at least on my part, a really earnest effort to like it until about 45 minutes in when I kind of gave up. But apparently you did like it. So so make the case for us real quick here. Uh, well, it's hard for me to make the case in any respect other than that. So there's this hot tub. And uh, it's a time machine. And then fucking John Cusack gets in it and goes back to the 80s. And then they're in the 80s. And no, you're right. This awesome. movie is, I mean, it pre-sells itself with the title. And I was making the case for it right up to the moment of walking in the theater. Like, how bad can a movie be called Hot Tub Time Machine in which John Cusack, Craig Robinson, and Rob Corddry travel back in time to the 80s? And yet, the answer, unfortunately, for me was it can be pretty bad. Yeah, I feel the same way. I mean, the title is great. The concept is great. I didn't think they improved upon the title in the movie, though. Well, let's let's walk through. Okay, let's. Obviously, the the story does pretty much spell itself out in the title, but maybe just so that we can get into a few of the plot details, let's let's walk through what happens. Shall we do it all together? Who wants to take it? Let's do it in unison. Ready? One, <laughs> two. There's a hot uh, no. time machine. I'll do it. I'll do it. Uh, so, um, uh, Rob Corddry and um, John Cusack and Craig Robinson and Clark Duke. Uh, play four guys who go on a ski retreat after Rob Corddry's character uh, almost dies uh, while drunkenly singing along to Motley Crue in his car while it's running in the garage. Um, And uh, mistaking that for a possible suicide attempt, um, his friends, uh, played by John Cusack and Craig Robinson, take him up to the old ski resort where they had spent many an enjoyable weekend back in the 80s as young bucks. Um, Clark Duke, who plays uh, John Cusack's character's nephew, comes along um, for reasons totally unexplored and unexplained. Um, (laughs) They get up there, and uh, by dint of the eponymous time travel device, uh, go back in time to the 80s, in, in fact, to 1986, to a specific weekend that their young selves had been there before. Um, and to the outside world, they appear to be their young selves reliving and impa- and perhaps improving on that weekend. Um, and, but to each other, they just look like John Cusack, Craig Robinson, and Rob Corddry. Um, Clark Duke doesn't change physically because he wasn't even born in 1986, um, although he does flicker in and out of existence every now and then whenever his con- Conception is imperiled. Right, and, and, we, and we, learned becomes, that, sorry. we learned that he was conceived that very weekend. 
That's right. Um, to, he uh, was conceived that very weekend to John Cusack's character's sister. Um, and we learn, uh, spoiler alert, for those of you who weren't aware, the spoiler special will be spoiling this movie, um, as if it matters. Uh, we do learn that um, Clark Duke's character is, in fact, Rob Corddry's character's son. I don't have all the character names in front of me. But maybe it would be easier, but let's just call them by their actor names. I can't That's remember anything of them as for, anyway. For Lou, for Lou who was the, the Rob Corddry character. They right. sometimes call we'll Lucifer. Just, we'll just call him the Violator. <laughs> the Violator, right. So I'm going to jump in with something that you just mentioned now, which I think was one of the first details that doesn't work. It's not a huge part of the movie, but I think it's part of... I, I think that this is a good example of the movie's whole conception of its time travel premise not really working, which is that whenever these guys see themselves in a mirror or when they're seen by other people, they're played by other actors. In other words, we see them as, you know, John Cusack, Rob Corddry, and Craig Robinson. But when they look at themselves, there's these young stand-ins that are supposed to be stand for their younger selves. And I found that to be a really clumsy conceit that never worked and that took me out of the movie every single time. It was an odd choice. Um, it sort of like had one... The, the first time you see the images in the mirror it's sort of a funny sight gag particularly the Craig Robinson character who looks um, like either kid or play I can't remember now play he looks he looks like the one with a huge mushroom head the kind of columnar mohawk yeah the one with a sort of architectural fade Um, and that's a kind of funny moment but it was actually really problematic I thought with um, John Cusack because we all know what John Cusack looked like in 1986 he looked like the John Cusack of Better Off Dead and the the character they got to um, the you know the, the young guy that got to play 1986 86 John Cusack didn't look anything like the John Cusack we know from the real world. He looked it's actually true, more like Keanu bad. Reeves. It's too bad they didn't just use that like Fred Astaire technology to insert um, 1986 era John Cusack into that one shot. That would have been awesome. Yeah, I was yeah, surprised there wasn't they... more kind of Nat King Cole, Natalie Cole action, you know, with them meeting up yeah. with their younger selves. Maybe they didn't have the money or the rights. Um <laughs> I guess that didn't bother me so much in the sense that I liked the notion that we weren't going to have to watch some fake John Cusack for the entire movie, and we got to watch the real John Cusack. Oh, that would have been um, terrible, yeah. But I just, right. I just thought he should have he should have been himself every time we saw him, and we can just take we can just accept as a as a given that everybody else sees him as a younger guy. Right, right. But I guess it didn't bother me that we got one shot to basically explain that to us, so they didn't have to go through a long scene of them saying, "Wait a minute." Everyone sees us as our younger selves. We must be our younger selves. <laughs> well, no, you know, I just felt like thing. it was a way of short-circuiting that boring scene. Right, right. But see, I guess John and I were both saying that we would have liked that the time travel conceit be the object of more meta conversation in the movie. And that, in fact, if this actually happened to you and you and your buddies traveled back 20 years in time, you would spend a long time sitting around drawing diagrams on coasters about how you thought time travel worked. I just thought there could have been some fun. There could have, for example, other time travel movies, and particularly 80s time travel movies, could have been brought in as subjects of conversation. Hey, does the time loop here work like the one in The Terminator or like the one in Back to the Future? And, you know, they could sort of figure that out and how they were going to contend with it based on their own movie knowledge, which is all we any of us know of time travel. Right. Instead, right. there's just like a sort of a, a very brief moment at the beginning where they, they decide that they each have to do exactly what they did on the original weekend so that... Um, you know, the future isn't messed up, or as one of the characters sort of amusingly puts it, Hitler doesn't become president, uh, which is sort of a, a kind of funny, absurdist line. Um, but then they kind of... So 
I don't know, for 15 minutes, they try to kind of walk through their lives as they best remember them from 1986. But pretty quickly, that goes away as a conceit of what is going on in the movie and just like more general hijinks ensue, right? Uh, Yeah, I felt like the hijinks could have been structured by those basic tasks. I like the idea that they each had a basic task. You, John Cusack, have to break up with your 1986 girlfriend. Right. Right? You, what did did, uh, Rob Corddry's character have to do? He had to get get beaten up. He had to get beat up by like a, a, one. this is a slightly funny moment, I thought, uh, or element of the movie was they had a kind of great riff on the 80s uh like asshole, 80s asshole movie guy is the sort of the William Zabka character um, from Karate Kid or, you know, fill in, the, fill in any number of examples from... Or, or the William Zabka character from Back to School. Or the way, yeah, exactly. William Zabka uh, sort of minted that that role like no one else in the 80s. Well, we should mention that William Zabka has a small role as one of the bad guys in this movie. I want to get to that scene, which I thought was one of the horrible low points of the movie, but go ahead, John. Uh, what was I saying? I forget. Um, the, the, the Blaine, who's the... Oh, yeah, William so Blaine, Zabka. Blaine, which is a sort of perfect... Uh, uh, perfectly apt name for this um, '80s uh, uh, guy who's the, who's the jerk. Like that part was kind of funny. Like the sort of showdown with the fact that there is a showdown with a guy like that who wears turtlenecks and has like a very funny like plate of hair uh, hanging over his forehead and um, is is a yuppie. Like he he, he sort of was a, a kind of clever riff on an '80s movie convention. But there wasn't. I think we were saying this earlier, Dana. There weren't enough of those. In the movie, there were some. There were a lot of kind of like throwaway references. Although I think Dana, you and I missed many of them. Dan, you were saying before we started taping that you caught maybe more than we did. Of well, these I definitely. I had to, I had to ask some of my '80s movie living friends even to bring me up to speed on a couple of them. But do you yeah, throw I mean, out guess, an example of, of like the kind of thing that the, the movie right, does? Right. So so there's you know there are eighty there are '80s references all over this movie from Blaine that that character's name, which is of course the name of Andrew McCarthy's character in The Breakfast Club. Um, so oh. vividly described as Ducky as Blaine. That's a major appliance. That's not a name. Uh, um, oh, in Sixteen also, Candles? No, no, in um, Pretty in Pink. Oh, Pretty in Pink. Sorry, yeah, you said Breakfast yeah. Club. Oh, I'm sorry, Pretty in Pink. Yes, uh, and um, and then there's also there's a Better Off Dead reference when um, they're out on the ski slopes and the guy skis past them yelling, I, "You still owe me two dollars." And then there's the Sixteen Candles reference when um, the two characters, John Cusack and this girl who doesn't even make any sense, are sitting in front of a fireplace, cross-legged, awkwardly trying to kiss each other, just like Molly Ringwald and Jake Ryan in Sixteen Candles. Oh, right. Um, so it's, I mean, the, I guess part of the issue is who is this movie for and what do you expect out of it? And I think that that is the way that the movie succeeded for me. This movie is a movie for people who are obsessed with 80s movies and who have watched and rewatched them even more times than I have. Um, and the movie functioned to me best as a basically lazy throwaway uh, very funny comedy that also was a riff on and a parody of the sort of overall crappiness of those 80s movies. Which is to say that the charm of those movies for the people who love them now is not that they were great, but that they were inspired and shitty at the same time. Um, and that is what I ended up liking about Hot Tub Time Machine, that like those movies, it too was inspired and shitty at the same time. It had a great concept. It had some really good jokes. There were long sections of it that didn't make any sense at all, but still made me laugh like a moron. Is Better Off um, Dead the movie you're, right, you're talking about right now? Basically all Better Off Dead or Back to School or like Moving Violations was the example that I used in my Village Voice review, which is which I described as the greatest ever movie about driving school starring Bill Murray's brother. <laughs> 
You know, I disagree. This movie... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's debate on that. It's the long story. We'll make a, we'll make a list. Uh, but but this, to me, this movie functioned as a great example of the kinds of movies that we had to watch all the time in the '80s when The Breakfast Club wasn't out in theaters or when Sixteen Candles hadn't come out yet. All the other movies that filled. Uh, the filled space in between those movies on the calendar and, and existed solely for people like me who were 15, uh, you know, in 1988 um, to see and laugh at and watch on VHS like a dozen times. I have to say that is that is one of the most inspired defenses, <laughs> elaborate defenses for a mediocre movie ever, that it's inspired by a whole history of mediocre movies. That it's And it's... movies that are loved for their mediocreness. I mean, I guess I guess my argument would be the people who love Better Off Dead don't love it because it's, it's a masterpiece. They love it because John Cusack is pretty awesome in it and because it was a, watching it was a formative experience of your pre-adolescence. You know, and so, and you love it because big chunks of it are really stupid and terrible, um, but in a way that you feel great affection for. Um, and that's the way that I loved Hot Tub Time Machine. Even the parts that were stupid, I loved for their stupidity. And I feel like the movie had the same affection for its source material that I did. That's a that's a brilliant defense. I guess I... I well, yeah, what, the, fight that, guys. <laughs> <laughs> the problem I had with it is that it's hard to separate the nostalgia from the stupidity when I'm thinking about a movie like Better Off Dead, which I also loved and was was formative in in my uh, upbringing and uh, you know deciding how what kind of movies I wanted to watch. I mean, you know, here it was just stupid, um, and I'm not 15 anymore. Well, I would also argue that there's a, there's a very um, post 2000s spirit that enters into this movie that I don't remember from any 80s movies. It's it's very, very heavy on the gross out guy humor, right? right. I was trying to count up all the bodily fluids that uh, around which there is a sight gag and pretty much everything except blood finds its way into it. No blood There's too. There's a urine sight gag. Crispin Glover. There's a blood sight You're right. There's a blood sight gag. There is, of course, a <laughs> shit and piss sight gag. Yeah, semen. There is, oh, there's a really gross semen sight gag. Right. Oh, this kind of brings us There's to a inter- fantastic interesting... vomit sight gag. It must be said when he blows the squirrel off. <laughs> Come on! I wish you could have seen the look John and I just exchanged. <laughs> that was awful. <laughs> I don't know how you gradate your vomit gags, but I- I'm not liking your your hierarchy. It, it does seem like I guess the the Dan's defense of that would be that they seem to use like you know no technology that has been inv- invented since 1986 <laughs> to make that they effect. Use, they use the exact same hose, I assume, from Meaning of Life. <laughs> Right, I mean, Surely. I just assumed that it probably was this like a the same like they dug out from the Universal backlot a big vat that said yeah, there's still of a sealed drum of of Monty right. Python fake vomit. All right, right. here's a here's a a, a a response to your um to your defense, Dan. That I'm curious what what you think of. I mean, one thing that that Dana and I discussed uh, last night after seeing the movie was the movie trucks in some pretty rank misogyny and homophobia, which actually feel of a piece with the kind of movie that was made in 1986, certainly the, the sort of of the stripe that you're describing. And not that it was OK then, but I sort of feel like the world has changed a good bit uh, in the in the time uh, since, you know, since 1986. And um I don't know, like the scene that the, the Dana alluded to earlier with uh, William Zabka, where it's sort of all based around the idea of um, Rob Corddry giving a blowjob to Craig Robinson uh, on a bet, he on a bet, bet, you know, while William Zabka waves a gun at him. I mean, that and that people w- stand around them cheering them on. I, to me, that 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 scene invoked all kinds of things, Dan, like like mob violence and and forced rape at gunpoint that were just really hard to to build a gag around. Yeah, it was like it really left it. It was really kind of. Uh, kind of awful. Um, 
I don't know. Can can you write that off as 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 homage, or, or is it just is it just too kind of retrograde? That you know that it, I I found it too retrograde to um, to appreciate certainly, and it kind of ruined my experience of the surrounding scenes as well. Um, I don't know if it ruined my experience. It definitely was one of my less favorite scenes in the movie. The presence of William Zabka aside, um, but. I guess I viewed it as you're right, Dana, that the the movie does, for all its sort of throwbackness, does have a certain aspect of the kinds of things that you have to put in R-rated comedies now to get them made, right? Like all the barfing and all the shitting and the blood and um, and the like, sort of baseline level misogyny and the like fear of emasculation. Um, the scenes that actually bothered me the most, I think, the scenes that functioned for me the way that that scene functioned for you, where every time that Craig Robinson's character was belittled for hyphenating his last name. Yeah, that was annoying. Which also annoyed me, but at the same time, to me, I viewed those sort of as the price of admission to make that comedy in 2010. Um, which is to say, if you're going to convince the studio to let you make a throwback um, comedy uh, that's an ode to trashy 80s movies and you want it to have a better budget than Wet Hot American Summer, you're probably going to have to include a bunch of that crap in the same way that in the 80s, they to make those movies for you know Savage Steve Holland to make the movie that he wanted to make, he had to include some boobs. and Well, like he probably wanted to include the boobs. But in general, he had to include a bunch of crap that he that that potentially offended him as well, and that would offended our sensibilities. That offends our sensibilities now when watching those movies. So no, I don't have a good answer for that. I don't have a good answer for what makes those scenes necessarily funny. Although the crowd, pretty much everyone besides me and the crowd that I saw that movie with, laughed like the Dickens throughout the entire um, Rob Corddry, Craig Robinson faux blowjob scene. I can't um, remember. Did our audience was did they get raucous? I didn't no. find that our audience was laughing super hard throughout the whole movie. I, yeah, it was interesting. Our audience seemed very very pumped for the movie when it started. You know, cheered the, the title. Cheered the title. Mm-hmm. The, the movie opens with uh, kind of a great collage of just like funny snapshots of, of people, people doing stupid things in hot tubs, which I thought was actually kind of a great opening sequence. And you could tell there was a palpable energy that people were really excited to see a movie about uh, a hot tub uh, time traveling. All right. Well, guys, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor, which, as you know, is Audible.com, the site that offers more than 60,000 downloadable audiobooks. Now, we have a a great recommendation from Audible this week. I don't know if you guys know this, but Stephen Hawking, who's actually referenced in the movie, right? There's a not very funny Stephen Hawking joke at one point from Rob Corddry. But Stephen Hawking's entire brief history of time, which, if anything, can explain how you can go back to 1986 in a a hot tub, is available on Audible. And it's read by one Michael Jackson. I'm going to have to presume that's some other reader. But there couldn't be anything more mid-'80s than Stephen Hawking's time travel read by Michael Jackson. That's amazing. So that's our recommendation for the week. If you sign up for a one book a month subscription to Audible through our URL, which is www.audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler, you'll get a credit good for one free book, which you get to keep even if you cancel your subscription after the 14-day trial period. That address again is www.audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. So back to the time machine. Um, you wanted to talk, John, about about friendship and how you were sort of disappointed in the portrait of, of friendship in the movie. Yeah. So you know, at the beginning of the of the movie, uh, you know, we meet these characters. We get the sense that they've been friends for a really long time. They drifted they, apart. They've drifted apart. Um, they don't hang out as much as they used to. 
Um, and so part of the movie is, is sort of about how this trip back to 1986 supposedly will bring them back together and, you know, open their eyes to what true friendship means and how they should, uh, you know, how they should, they should not, um, forsake these, these friendships formed, uh, in the, in the forge of the eighties. Um, but I never really cared all that much about the friendships. It wasn't very well established, you know, why these guys had been had been such good friends. What what tore them apart? Um, and in the end, they you know they do sort of all end up, you know, at a, at a, sitting around a picnic table together, and seemingly th- their bonds are stronger than than ever. But I I don't know. It just didn't. That felt to me like a um, a place where the movie didn't didn't succeed and didn't succeed in a way that was disappointing because the movies that this movie is in conversation with from the, from the eighties often were despite their weirdness and badness and uh, other things often did capture something great about relationships, either between friends uh, or uh, within a family. Certainly the, you know, the John Hughes movies were, uh, were often, you know, great movies about friendship. Uh, Ferris Bueller's day off uh, is a movie about a friendship, Better Off Dead is, is, you know, even though it's so weird, is a great sort of evocation of adolescent life and, uh, of, you know, a kid's relationship with his parents. Um, that There's a certain sweetness to those movies uh, that is pretty lacking here, I thought. Well, this is maybe Dan can, can convince us on this one, too, but I completely agree. I think as we were walking out of it, I was saying this movie needed a lot more sap. It really just it, I feel like there was not that much heart. And yet it sort of portended, pretended to have at the end. Right. I mean, the friendships are sort of sundered at the beginning of the movie by time and by drifting apart. And also by the fact that Rob Corddry's character has kind of become an alcoholic loser who these guys were afraid of being dragged down by. Right. And so it's actually there's a pretty heavy duty thing at the heart of this movie, which is that their friend possibly attempted to commit suicide. Right. Yeah. Which he denies, but is definitely going down the tubes in some way. And they go on this weekend to kind of save him and all this stuff is in the script but I don't really I didn't really feel that it was played out either in the performances or, or in the writing throughout the movie and at the end there's this toward the end there's kind of a rooftop reconciliation scene where they're all on this dangerous peaked roof high above the ski resort and uh, and hashing out their 20 year old problems and John Cusack basically says to Rob Corddry's character look we had to drift away from you because you were going to drag us all down you were just you were just becoming this you're the loser spiraling out of control I mean it's, it's a pretty heavy duty scene and I felt like that the movie really threw away the opportunity to have some real heart there. I have no argument against everything you're saying other than to note that in Police Academy, <laughs> now he the important question, of course, was, will the cadets graduate and become police officers? An arguably more serious issue than the friendship of these four men. <laughs> but wasn't there like a great friendship between like Hightower and... I don't know. Like, <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> yeah, that guy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have no argument. Of course the friendship is not dealt with particularly well. I mean, everything in this movie is not dealt with particularly well. <laughs> and I can think of a million ways that this could have been a better movie, but that did not stop me from essentially pissing my pants laughing at it. Oh, I just I wish I were Dan Coyce right now. That was just the experience I wanted to have. I wanted to forgive it all its flaws and just just enjoy it. I agree. I will say one thing for you. I loved the um, 80s ski fashion. Like when they yeah. first come back, when they first get to uh, get in the hot tub and go back to '86, they don't quite realize right away what's happened, and they go out for a day of of hitting the slopes, and <laughs> just some amazing day glow outfits that other people are wearing. Um, well, and I mean, then one they- thing I liked about it was that was that it took place not in like the real '80s, but some in some kind of uber 80s wonderland right it's like where every, everyone wears the most fuchsia, 80s thing turquoise, they can right it's color like you, block right you're like if you're not wearing like a reagan t-shirt you're wearing an elf t-shirt or like a right. miami vice polo 
Right. Like everything or a wears everything. the beef shirt. <laughs> right. Someone was wearing a wears the beef shirt. I still feel like, I mean, fashion wise it's, it's, and music wise, it sort of hit the tail on the head. But I, I wish that there had been even more exploration of just sort of, I mean, there could be millions of them. I'm sure that a bunch of funny people sitting around a table could come up with a ton of jokes about, you know, expression, different expressions of the 80s and just sort of different frameworks in which people thought about things, right? I mean, there's a few email jokes and Twitter jokes here and there which feel stale already, but I feel like there could have been really some some deeper exploration of the paradigm shift that's happened between 1986 and now. There is a really yes. funny moment. Uh, <laughs> this is, I think, the moment I laughed the loudest at was um, at one point, sort of near the climax, Rob Corddry is on the aforementioned rooftop, and he's, like, drunk as can be, and uh, he sort of... I guess we're supposed to understand that he's decided that he doesn't care anymore whether the uh, people from 1986 know about what happens in the in the future. So he's sort of crying literally from the rooftops, various facts about the future. And he, he screams out loud, John Lennon gets shot. And then he's like, oh, wait, that already happened. <laughs> that was really funny. There could have been more stuff like that, I think. Well, yeah, there just could have been jokes about them not remembering what had or had not happened by 86. Yeah. Right? And also, just like you, I think you said this before, Dana. Like, I wish they had sort of talked more explicitly about movies. Like, I wish they'd sat down and been like, "Okay, wait, what is it exactly that you know uh, Christopher Lloyd got from the Libyans at the beginning of the of Back to the Future in order to power the you know um, the that time machine? You know, what just kind of hashing over that stuff as opposed to these sort of like recondite um, allusions to movies that were over the head of of me. And I, I like to think that I'm sort of an '80s movie buff, but I guess I'm not. Well, given I mean, that these I guys are like supposed the, to be, oh, sorry. I was just going to Go say, ahead, given that these guys are, are clearly painted as having been pop culture consumers in the '80s, and they're all dressed like kid and play or whatever, you know, they clearly were were plugged into pop culture in 1986. So it seems that 20 years later, they would be. It wouldn't just be us who's getting the throwaway "Better Off Dead" reference of the guy skiing down the hill saying, "You owe me two dollars." It would be them saying, "Wait, didn't that happen in Better Off Dead?" <laughs> That's a great point. That would have been awesome, and then the film would have eaten itself. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I, I, I would have liked to have seen that, too. I mean, what you're basically positing, John, it sounds like, is that you wanted, in some ways, this to be like the scream of time travel movies, right? The time travel movie filled with people who have seen other time travel movies. Yeah, I guess. Um, right, and who could discuss it, and that would have been fun. And, and there are a couple of throwaway lines to The Terminator, and I think someone makes a Back to the Future reference, possibly... Um, in front of George McFly himself. Yes. Um, oh, we haven't discussed the Crispin Glover. Did you, Dan? As I did, like the running gag about Crispin Glover. And do you want to? Do you want to describe it? Oh yeah, I love that. Um, so Crispin Glover plays a bellman at the um, ski resort that they visit, um, who, when he takes their bags in, has one arm. Uh, in 2010. And so when they travel back to 1986, they encounter a younger, happier Crispin Glover with two arms. And so one of the funniest running eggs of the movie is basically answering the question, when will poor Crispin Glover get his arm chopped off? Right, so again and again, he keeps he keeps right. having having near misses where you, you can't believe his arm isn't torn off by this or that closing elevator door. What else almost chops his arm off? Uh, I can't remember the helicopter blades. Who knows? <laughs> Some but, of them were pretty were pretty like elaborate setups. Like they were they were pretty funny. And and in that rooftop scene that we've talked about, the kind of funny climax of that is they all sort of start slipping off the roof and they're barely hanging on for life. And it's Crispin Glover who saves them with his with the arm that we know will later become missing, which is a kind right. of nice. And in a, in a moment of horror, they think, "Are we the ones who ripped his arm off <laughs> yeah, right. with our combined fat weight?" <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, I, I, too, would have enjoyed seeing the the scream of time travel movies, and I would have loved to have seen these four guys sit around trying to figure out what it was that actually happened in Back to the Future. Um, but again, that, that, you know, that would have been about seven degrees smarter than this movie actually is. 
Well, I've said it before. I'll say it again. I wish that I were Dan Coyce and I had had the experience of joy and hot tub time machine that, that he had instead of the one that John and I did. So many have said it before, but rarely so poignantly. <laughs> I just <laughs> would like to say sentiment has been expressed. I'd like to say in closing that I thought that was a criminal criminal misuse of William Zabka, an actor who I have admired for many, many years. I was Although, so excited uh, he was in the movie, and I just think he could have been put to better use. It's true that uh, his credit was funnier than he was. His credit uh, is definitely he, funnier. Yeah, when he's when at the in the credits with all the characters, it says at the end and introducing William Zabka. <laughs> Once again, an in-joke for those very few who are going to even know who the hell William Zabka is. I had seen every one of those movies, and John had to tell me that that's that guy. That's who this movie is for. <laughs> if you laugh at the concept of and introducing William Zabka, there's like an 85% <laughs> chance you'll laugh at this movie. That's, I think that's true. Although I laughed at that, at that credit and didn't love the movie, but I'm, in the, I'm just a part of the 15%. You're the outlier. Well, you guys, thank you very much for joining me. John, thanks for joining me at the movie. Uh, my pleasure. And Dan, thanks for joining us for this Slate spoiler special. Thanks, guys. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.